Hello and welcome to Big Fields at Work, the show where mental health and addictions workers talk about what it's like to work in this field and have big feelings of your own. It's just me this time, Graham Panther. This one's a solo episode. I've been reading through some messages from listeners, messages that I really think speak to something underpinning so much of the work we do for those of us working in mainstream mental health and addiction settings whilst also struggling with our own stuff. This kind of background hum of judgment or perceived judgment from colleagues. So here's one listener, a peer worker, saying, How do you go about this in a workplace where you feel you're being judged by those who might not understand completely? Those who don't have mental health issues themselves. It's not just the peer workers wondering about this. Here's a GP who says, I always wonder how much I should share my personal experience with my colleagues. And here's a psychologist who's wondering, how can I be more honest with colleagues and not feel afraid of repercussion? So that phrase, afraid of repercussion, contains so much. It's a fear of judgment. It's a fear of professional reprise. And it's interesting with what that psychologist is saying there. How can I be more honest with colleagues and not feel afraid of repercussion? I don't know how to not feel afraid in that setting, because the truth is, there is sometimes something to fear, right? You never know what kind of response you're going to get to being honest. There's inherent risk and vulnerability. As I've said in a previous episode, I can see a parallel to when you're talking to a mental health professional as a client, and you're doing that dance of how honest do I be? So I'm sitting there in my GP's office, for instance, getting my mental health care plan, and I want to be honest enough that they take me seriously and give me the help that I'm asking for. But I don't want to be so honest that they freak out and the risk management walls come down, stifling any possibility of a genuine therapeutic connection, right? With colleagues, there can be the same dance. I want to be honest enough that I can, say, bring more of myself to the work and draw on my own rich life experience for all of our benefit on a project or in a care setting. But I also quite rightly worry that if I'm too honest, my colleagues will stop seeing me as a person and an equal and their own walls might go up. And the crazy making part of all this is that just like when you're asking for help, you often don't know whether the person you're talking to whether it's a GP you're asking for a mental health care plan or a colleague you're sharing some delicate disclosure with, you never really know just how they're going to take it. Will they freak out? Or will they go, oh shit, hey, me too. So this question of how do I not feel afraid of repercussions, I don't know how to not feel that fear, but I do have some thoughts on, I suppose, what we do with it. I know that for me, the last time I had a job in a very mainstream setting in mental health, that background hum of perceived judgment, it was just there no matter what I'd shared or didn't share, right? I wasn't in a designated role specifically. Lived experience wasn't in my job title, but it was common knowledge that I had lived experience. And it was definitely something I mentioned explicitly in my work often, because it was a big part of the value I was bringing to that particular stream of work. And yet, even though I could see the value of my own lived experience myself, 
and so could my closest colleagues, I couldn't help but also imagine all these other colleagues having all sorts of judging responses. And that perceived judgment, whether it was real or not, it used to really irk me. So one of my (laughs) strategies in those days, this is about 10 years ago, is I would wear a suit. I had a suit that I could put on and go to work in what was a a fairly casual dress work setting and sort of just somehow feel like I had this kind of armor, this like uh, symbol of professionalism so that even if I was getting up in front of a bunch of colleagues and talking about my own messy life stuff, I was at least looking the part, right? Or not looking the part that I imagined they'd think I'd look knowing the things I was telling them about. And who knows if it really worked, right? Like, there's every chance that those colleagues who were going to judge me anyway were now just looking at me going, who does he think he is in this ridiculous suit? But you know what? It helped me feel more sure of myself at a time when I needed that in the work. And look, I didn't always wear it, but if we were doing a presentation or a meeting with fancy important decision makers, the suit helped me feel like I belonged there. It helped me feel like I was still professional, even as I was the only one in the room casually mentioning, I don't know, my experiences of profound distress and despair. These days, the suit gets left at home more often than not. And I'll give a little story about why in a bit. But I think for me personally, having spent six years pouring my heart out on the internet through Big Feels Club and Big Feels at Work, the sensitive cat is well and truly out of the bag. It's been almost a decade since I worked at that mainstream mental health agency where I wore the suit. And I recently found out something really interesting, which is that this particular workplace is now staffed by more than 50% people with lived experience. And I was really struck by that because just 10 years ago when I was there, it really felt like we were the minority. Now, I imagine some of that change will be active hiring for people with lived experience, but some of it is likely to simply be that at a certain tipping point, it got safe enough for all the people already working there, not disclosing their lived experience, to come out and say, hey, actually, me too. And I'm realizing I'm kind of proud to have been part of pushing toward that tipping point in that particular organization, in my own small way. Me and a few others who'd been in there much longer than I was, in there waving the flag for the messiness of being human. You know, challenging this fiction that we, the workers, are somehow the ones with our lives together and the people we help are the ones that need help. It's like we were slowly but surely giving other people in that organization the permission to wave the flag too. And in retrospect, this makes me think a little bit differently about some of that perceived judgment, too, that I was kind of imagining in the air back then. No doubt, some of them, some of the more old school workers, probably were sitting there going, why, why do we have these, these clients here? But there was also something I wasn't seeing. This quiet, slow revolution that we were helping to lead. It is not always easy to be part of that first wave. And you definitely don't see all the benefits of your actions at the time. You may never see them. They may take years. But it can have such a ripple effect down the path. 
Gareth and I have talked a bit on this podcast about how you always get to decide if you disclose, when you disclose, how much you disclose about your own messy life stuff. And it can happen in increments, right? Like even then at that mainstream mental health agency where I was being pretty out and proud about my own stuff, I'd often talk about it in the past tense. I'd talk about it as something that happened to me once. And at the time, that was almost kind of true. I was going through a a sort of uncharacteristically stable portion of my life back then. But that soon changed. And one big wrinkle for me is that for a long time, I haven't felt like there is a clear episodic nature to my struggles. Sometimes it feels more like I have episodes of mental health as in pathological bursts of wellness that happen amidst years of hard slog. That is finally changing for me, knock on wood. So actually just this year, I've had some quite profound shifts in my own well-being that feel genuinely transformative in ways that I had given up hoping for, if I'm honest. But for much of my 30s, which are now almost over, I, I often felt like I was really just surviving one crisis after another. So when I think about disclosing the full truth to my colleagues, even if it might not always have been, hey, I'm in crisis right now, for a long time, the most honest thing to say would have been, yeah, I am struggling right now because I'm kind of always struggling. And that wasn't necessarily something that I wanted all my colleagues to know. Or more to the point, it's not something I think all people can understand. Just like there's some friends that get it and other friends you don't share everything with. And when they say, how you been? You say, yeah, good. Because you know that the conversation that would follow if you were honest would just be less helpful with that particular friend. Similarly, I think, you know, you do pick and choose the colleagues that you tell more of the truth to or less of the truth to. And I just want to name that I do think there is this idea that our lived experience should somehow be packaged if we're going to use it at work. That, you know, this old idea of sharing your story, which has sort of been a a cliche about lived experience work for a number of years, even though so many of us will know it's not really about sharing your story you might do that sometimes but mostly it's about just having kind of a shared experience that gives you a connection to build on and work with but this idea of sharing your story the idea that your story can be a simple finished product like like it should be a kind of widget like our lived experience should be a kind of widget that we can plug in and use in a productive professional setting when the truth is I'm not always sure what's past and what's present. How do I share my story as a neat packaged thing when my story is still unfolding and it doesn't have a neat beginning and it doesn't have a middle and it doesn't have an end? It's just fucking happening day by day. And how, big question, how can all of that ever be quote unquote professional? These are big questions and I don't, really have a neat answer but I do think a big part of the answer for me is if you know you know 
What I mean by that is there are people who get it and I can tell close to the whole truth to. And there are people who don't get it and I will always give them a version of the truth and that's okay. And like I say, who knows, maybe 10 years down the track, many of those that I thought for sure would never understand will actually find now that this stuff is so much just a normal part of their work world and their conversations that they do eventually get it. You never know. Here's another listener response, a question from a peer worker who says, how do other people deal with it? I'm a very transparent person, but sometimes I feel like this is seen as a liability. Yet at other times, others love it. I feel like I'm still finding out how it works best for me and I get very insecure. Absolutely. Again, I just want to say the thing I say on every episode lately, it's fucking weird. It's a weird thing to bring that much of your delicate real world life to work. Most people in a professional setting are putting their best foot forward. They're not also bringing the good, bad and the ugly with them. I'd agree with this peer worker that transparency is a strength in their role, but it probably feels like a weakness just a few moments later when you get what my girlfriend calls the vulnerability hangover. So this is that thing where, you know, you've been at work or you've been with a friend and you've just kind of shared in a deep and meaningful a little bit more than you usually would. You've gone to that kind of delicious, vulnerable, connecting space. But even if it went really well, you can come away later that day or the next day and just have this kind of moment of, oh shit, did I overexpose myself? And so that's called the vulnerability hangover. What I like about that phrase, vulnerability hangover, is that if I can expect it, if I know it's coming, that kind of helps. I'm able to say, oh yeah, hello to that. This is the vulnerability hangover right on schedule rather than take it as a sign that I've said something that I shouldn't. Because the truth is, sharing vulnerable stuff will make us feel vulnerable. That's part of it. And it's really up to you how much of that you're willing to invite into your working life specifically. But the kicker is, we can only really work out our tolerance for vulnerability by being vulnerable, by testing it out bit by bit. And that can be scary. And it can have repercussions. So last point on all this. If we're going to be in there doing this weird work, being vulnerable, we do need to find others that can support us on the path. I am a broken record on this. I often say, you know, if you're in there really feeling like you're doing this path alone, There's so much good that can come from finding one colleague who gets it. And they don't even have to be in your workplace. Just one other person walking the same strange path of doing the work whilst also having your own stuff going on. I started with Gareth, who's often my co-host on this show and who started life, well, in my life, (laughs) as uh, my external supervisor. So I managed to convince my work that I needed an external supervisor for who had lived experience themselves to help me do my job. But from there, I've slowly, over, over many years, grown a little Rolodex of like-minded souls, some of whom I might only talk to once a year. But there's this feeling of, oh, someone else out there who gets it. 
So I mentioned that suit that I used to wear to try to feel more professional. The real reason I stopped wearing it so much was actually this one specific incident of essentially finding more of my tribe, other people who who work in this field who get it. So a few years ago, I went to this meeting at Shark, which is an addiction service in Melbourne, where a whole lot of the staff, including the CEO, have their own messy life experience they're drawing on. Like that's just that's just part of the culture there. It's not at all unusual. So I was going into this meeting at Shark with some government reps. So of course I had the suit on, right? Got to look the part. And Heather, who at the time was the CEO of Shark, who's been on this podcast, she took one look at me and clocked the suit right away and just very politely, very gently proceeded to troll the shit out of me for being so overdressed. It wasn't said with any meanness. If anything, it was complimentary. But it was kind of pointed. It was this beautiful little moment of her, a fellow big feeler in a very fancy, very professional role, saying, I see what you're doing, mate. I get it. But you don't need to do that here if you don't want to. I didn't put the suit away for good at that point, but that was definitely the moment that I started to pull it out less and less in my work. It was the moment that I started to find more and more of my tribe, others working in the field who get it. So yeah, I started with Gareth years ago, slowly but surely snowballed from there with people like Heather into just this little tribe of people who get it. But that first person can be hard to find. It's a big part of why we made Big Feels at Work in the first place. People tell us it gives them at least a kind of virtual sense of community. One way I'd like to help in this space is to help create more spaces for people to meet and mingle together outside the usual work setting. We did our online meetup recently, the first kind of experiment in this direction. And that was a really nourishing conversation together about what it's like to do this weird and wonderful work. We'll look to do more online meetups in the future, possibly later this year. I'm also really keen to try an in-person version that'd be in Melbourne. If you want to hear about any of those experiments, make sure you're signed up to the Big Fields at Work newsletter which is different to the Big Feels Club newsletter, any of you who are on that too. So to get on the Big Feels at Work newsletter, go to bigfeelsatwork.com. The thing is, we have to knit these spaces together with one another. I hear from so many of you out there doing the best you can in a tough system. And like I say, I'm really curious about how we might join up together more regularly to connect through the hard stuff. So that when that inevitable judgment or perceived judgment or vulnerability of sharing and honesty comes up in our work there's this kind of container for that kind of bigger broader community we can feel like we're part of whilst we're in there waving the flag in our own particular patch that won't happen all at once but i'm genuinely hopeful that five years from now we might look back at this time and go Shit, why were we all so bloody isolated back then? Isn't this better? So anyway, that's my tender little vision that we'll slowly inch towards. Okay, that's all for me for now. We will catch you again soon on Big Visit Work.